History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this hundredth episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And tonight we are joined by two very special people. They are assistant producers for the show. First up, we have Stephen Pappas. How are you, Stephen? Good. How are you guys doing? Fabulous. And then we also have the woman we call affectionately mom. And since we're everybody's aunt, I guess she could be everybody's mom. And student. Hello, I'm glad to join you tonight. We have a very special location for this evening. What happened is we'd been kind of brainstorming. What did we want to do for our 100th episode? Because you got to do something for it. And we didn't want to do a review of all the other shows we've done, you know, kind of like what we were talking about for the anniversary show. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go look and see if there's anything special about the number 100. And so I'm looking around and I found fun facts on 100, but there's no weird mythology that I could find around the number 100. It's not like the number 13 or as I was Googling the number 100, this thing called the 100th Meridian showed up. And I was like, well, what's the 100th Meridian? I've never heard of it before. And as I was looking into it, I went, oh, this is kind of cool. It's it's similar to the equator. It's a imaginary line out there, but there's actually something kind of real that it designates as it's slices the United States in half. And of course, it goes all the way down the globe. So it slices a whole bunch of countries, not necessarily in half of them, but it goes through a lot of those countries. And I thought, huh, wouldn't it be fascinating if there was a city that was on the 100th meridian? So I googled that. And lo and behold, I found the wickedest city in the West. Which one would that be, Denise? That would be Dodge City. Absolutely. So I went, oh my gosh, you can't do any better than an Old West city and hauntings. And I've even been there. We've never, have I ever been there? I don't think you were with us when dad and I went. But it was a neat town. I loved it. I wanted to see it. And I did. And I even walked through Boot Hill. Have you ever been there, Stephen? No. The closest thing I've been to, uh, as far as a Wild West town, is a Wild West theme park here in North Carolina. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that counts. <laughs> oh, it doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's crazy about Dodge City is that you would think it's got to be haunted like you wouldn't believe. And Stephen, I don't know about you, but over on our end of things, we struggled to find hauntings there. Yeah, I think I've got two things written down here that I could find that were really solid that I knew you didn't already have. But other than that, it is quite crazy because you would think with all of the gunfights and everything that went on that there would be hauntings, but maybe they just didn't record them for us. Yeah, I'm not sure because when we did the Tombstone show, there was quite a bit of activity going on there. So we're going to bring you as much as we found. This show might be a little heavy on the history, but we're going to have a written Tootin, good time. Yes, we are. Yeehaw! (laughs) Well, before we slip on our cowboy boots, we have a little bit of business to take care of first. want to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com, for everything you could possibly want to know about the show. Denise, if people would like to send us some feedback, how can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We did announce our design contest on the last episode. Entries are due by February 13th of 2016. We already have three of them in. And just to refresh your minds, or if anybody hasn't listened to the episode number 99 and heard about the design contest, what we are doing, each month we do a drawing, and one lucky winner will get an exclusively designed t-shirt. And we're going to have one exclusive design each year. So this year, the design needs to incorporate a palm tree, a ghost, and the name History Ghost Bump. And I can tell you the three that we've already gotten so far are amazing. (laughs) They're very, very good. It could be more than one of either the ghost or the palm trees as well. So, But you have to have at least one ghost and one palm tree, and then history goes bump. Yeah, we need them about 1,500 by 1,500 pixels. 
in a JPEG or PNG format, something of that nature. And you just send that to the email address at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Denise right now is the judge, but she's having a very difficult time. She's been asking everybody at work what they <laughs> think. So we might actually put it up to a vote at the Spectacular Crew to see who wins. And that's probably what I will end up doing because it's very hard to judge artwork because they all are unique. They all have their things that I like about them and they all have people's personal time and energy put into them. So I'm probably going to cop out and have to go to a popular vote. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Brooke. Hi, Brooke. Mari. Hey, Mari. Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. Stephanie with an F. Hey, Stephanie with an F. You know, the other week we had two Cindy's, which I was like, well, that's kind of unusual. Well, this week we have two Robins. Hey, Rockin' Robins. So welcome to our Robins as well. I just thought that was fascinating. Hey, Robins. We want to thank Dee for her suggestions on when we go to Charleston. She said, hey, if you guys like Edgar Allan Poe and you're going to be in Charleston, there is a fort there on Sullivan's Island where he served when he was in the military. And there's also a a Poe Tavern, which is a little hole in the wall where everything is related to Edgar Allan Poe. So we're looking forward to checking that out. It's a hole in the wall. Can we call it the Poe Hole? The Poe Hole. (laughs) Great. We're going to get beat up. Uh, Rick, let us know. Just a short note to let you folks know how much I enjoy your podcast. Having a job as a medical courier and covering four states and 550 miles a day. Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, geez, that's exhausting. Listening to History Goes Bump makes the day fly by. You know, there's another medical courier out there, uh, Chris Scarborough, who's the host over at the Curiosa Podcast. That's what he do- does as his day job. I've binge listened and currently caught up on all your episodes and can't wait for the next installment. The chemistry of the show's historic information and Diane Denise's welcome banter is a joy and relief to listen to. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Rick. We appreciate that. And Julie left us a comment over on the fan page. She said, I'd never gotten into haunted history before, but I love your podcast. We get them all, don't we? <laughs> we get, get the people who are history, spooky, and neither. She said, I spent several years living in Butte, Montana, and while I've never had any experiences or even done any research at all, I'd love to hear about some of the stories about the Dumas brothel there. So I definitely have added that to the list. It sounds fascinating. All right, everyone, let's put on our cowboy boots. You're ready to go to Dodge City? Yeehaw! Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. You may not have heard of Palisades, Nevada, but at one time it was considered the wildest, roughest town west of Chicago back in the 1870s. Papers called it an evil hamlet and begged law enforcement to do something about all the senseless murders, bank robberies, showdowns, and Indian raids. The craziness coming out of Palisades went on for three years. Visitors arriving on train would witness all sorts of crime. They might see two men passing near the train, and one would suddenly pull a gun and fire, and the other man would drop dead. They might even witness a horrific massacre of the townspeople by the local Shoshone Native American tribe. Blood would be everywhere. What makes this story odd is the fact that none of this was real. The whole town was in on the drama, and they staged everything from gunfights to bank robberies to massacres. Visitors would come and witness the drama, some fainting, and then they would run from the town, leaving the townspeople rolling on the ground with laughter. The newspapers would report everything as real because the witnesses thought it was real. So Palisades gained a notorious reputation, even though it was a law-abiding town, and for the three years they play-acted being the roughest town around, not one real crime was committed in the town. Now that piece of Wild West history certainly is odd. This History Podcast 
is haunted. This day in history. On this day, January 28th, In 1855, the Panama Railway made its first run from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. The Panama Railroad was incorporated in New York on April 7, 1849. The construction contract for the railway was awarded to a company headed by George M. Totten and George D. Trotwine. Colonel George W. Hughes was hired to assess the location for the railway in January 1849. He reported that the location was horrible due to many factors. There were monsoons from June through December, that brought deluges of rain for periods of three days at a time. The area had steaming hot jungles that were dense, and the local timber could not be used in construction. And trying to get local labor was impossible because the men were undependable. Everything had to be imported for thousands of miles. Nevertheless, construction began on the mainland around Monkey Hill in August of 1850. It took over a year for eight miles of track to be completed, and the cost reached more than $1 million dollars. Word of this development caused the railroad stock to nosedive. It was the day before the successful run of the train that two construction crews were able to see each other as they worked towards each other. They worked through the night using large lanterns lit with whale oil. George Totten drove in the final spike. On the following morning, the train traveled the 47 miles along the track. The final cost reached over $6.5 million. You're listening to History Goes Bump. On today's show, we celebrate our 100th official episode, and we're having a rootin' tootin' good time heading to the Wild West town of Dodge City. We were looking for something special about the number 100 and came across this line that bisects the USA nearly in the middle, vertically, and lo and behold, we found Dodge City, sitting smack dab on top of it. The state of Kansas entered the Union in 1865 as a free state. The Civil War ended four years later and thousands migrated to Kansas, many of them veterans of the war. And then there were outlaws and other famous names we know from the Old West, like Bat Masterson and Doc Holliday, and nearly all of them spent some time in Dodge City. Put on your cowboy hat and boots and come with us as we look at the history and hauntings of Dodge City. Before we look at Dodge City, we wanted to look at this imaginary boundary known as the 100th Meridian. John Wesley Powell was the head of the U.S. Geological Survey in 1879, He established a line of longitude that was at 100 degrees of longitude west of Greenwich, or as we know it officially, the 100th meridian. What makes this line weird, or some kind of scientific wonder, is that it divides the arid west from the moist east, and that is a scientifically backed location. East of the 100th meridian, the average precipitation for the year is above 20 inches. Irrigation is not needed at that level, so this line is the boundary between the non-irrigated east and the irrigation necessary in the west. The line splits North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Texas. Corn, wheat, and soybean grow readily east of the line, but not west. The line has had other purposes in history. The Adams-Onis Treaty with Spain established the intersection of the 100th Meridian and the Arkansas River, now in South Dodge, as a corner of the boundary between the United States and Spain. Later, the 100th meridian in this area was the west boundary of the Osage Indian lands. As we travel down this imaginary line dividing the nation almost exactly in half, we find a city that is directly on the 100th meridian. That city is Dodge City in Kansas, and it was documented by a Boy Scout working on his Eagle Badge. Dodge City lies exactly at the intersection of the Arkansas River and the 100th meridian. The line has also been referred to as the Plague Line, as recently as late last year. This is because all the plague cases in America originated in states west of the 100th meridian. Prairie dogs, which are believed to live west of the 100th meridian, help the infected fleas to spread. Isn't that fascinating that this line, even though it's imaginary, it literally has two distinct regions on either side of it. That's because a big giant drew a line in the sand with his toe and said, don't cross it. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Well, and then when I found this little factoid about the plague, isn't that interesting too? It's like the plague doesn't go over the line. Did you guys know that there is a song that was written about the 100th Meridian? I did not. It's by this group called Tragically Hip. I'm going to go ahead and play a little snippet of it here. An American myth Take my life on my hands Where the great plains begin At the 100th Meridian At the 100th Meridian Where the great plains begin Driving down a corduroy road Weeds standing shoulder high Ferris wheel is rusting All right. So now that we've talked about the 100th Meridian, we might as well talk about Dodge City. Mom, why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about the history? Fort Dodge, located along the mountain branch of the Santa Fe Trail, a commercial route from Franklin, Missouri to Santa Fe, New Mexico, was established in 1865 to protect pioneers and trade wagons from Indian attacks. A lot of people confuse the Santa Fe Trail with other trails like the Oregon Trail, you know, immigrant trails. This was really basically a commercial trail. One of the interesting things about the Oregon Trail, didn't that still have like the wagons that would go through? They had the wagon wheel marks in the ground? Yes. If you go up to Wyoming and even Idaho, you can still see the grooves in the ground from all the wagon trains that went through. It's almost like having ditches go through the ground. As the wagons went through, they just went down further and further into the ground. So the Santa Fe Trail, does it have the same, a similar thing, or is that yes, just totally there different? there are some. Uh, if you go into Colorado, I've seen them. Uh, there are also some in New Mexico where, not a lot of them, but there are places where you can see the wagon wheel tracks. There are tracks that have gone deeply into the ground. There were quite a few uh, wagon trains that went through that were just all, you know, commercial. That's how they got supplies from Kansas to the Fort Union and and other places in New Mexico and Colorado. Santa Fe Trail does go through Colorado in two places. It kind of branches off at the mountain route and then the Cimarron cutoff. And the mountain route, you know, although travelers used that route, it ran along the north bank of the Arkansas River into Colorado. And the Cimarron cutoff about five miles south of the mountain branch was the preferred route because it was shorter and it had no mountains that they had to cross. Remember, they're in wagons and going across a mountain and with a wagon was not an easy thing. However, the miles of waterless sand hills and the risk of Indian attacks made the Cimarron Trail a more dangerous trail to travel. Rancher Henry L. Sittler built a three-room sod house five miles west of Dodge City in 1871. His sod house located at the base of a hill along the Santa Fe Trail, made it a convenient stopping place for buffalo hunters, traders, and wagon trains. By the way, a sod house is made out of the dirt. They would cut the grass and the dirt and make bricks with them, and they would stack them up, and that was a sod house or a sod building. Now, you can imagine what that would be like in the rain and the like. It didn't probably rain quite as much as it does in the east there, but when it would rain and they'd have sod roofs, the mud would come down into those houses, and you'd get snakes falling in on you and all sorts of fun things. Before long, Sittler was joined by George M. Hoover, who built a sod and board saloon. Dodge City's first business. A group of businessmen from Fort Dodge, Fort Riley, and Leavenworth, Kansas, organized the Dodge City Town Company on August 15, 1872, and started planning the development of their own town named Buffalo City. Now, whenever these towns were built, like Denver and some of the others, they always started a town company to found those cities. After learning another town had the same name as Buffalo City, they renamed their town Dodge City after the nearby fort. Dodge City grew quickly with the arrival of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad in September 1872. The town soon had two grocery and mercantile stores, a dance hall, restaurant, barbershop, blacksmith shop, 
and saloons frequented by buffalo hunters, railroad workers, drifters, and soldiers. By November, the town had 70 buildings. In the beginning, the town had no law enforcement and was out of Fort Dodge's jurisdiction, so it quickly became infamous for gunfights and general lawlessness. There wasn't always a, a sheriff or a police force in some of these towns in the beginning. Black Jack, the first person killed in Dodge, was buried on a treeless hill in September 1872. Others followed him, and the treeless hill was named Boot Hill Cemetery because they all died with their boots on. By the way, there are a lot of boot hills across the West. You go to some of those old towns in South Dakota and Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado, and they all had boot hills. Not always, I don't think, because they died with their boots on, but they were called that, and they were they were not fancy. They were dirt. They had yuccas growing in them. A lot of them didn't even have headstones. They just put the people in the ground uh, in some wood box, and they were just they were just not a really. They're not like the cemeteries we think of today. In fact, it really wasn't until later, much later on, that we have grass cemeteries with trees and all the beautiful things. Most cemeteries were near churches or next to churches in the east, and it wasn't until later on that they got separated out. So boot hills were very famous. Before you go on, Mom, I was just thought off the top of my head. I wonder how many boot hill cemeteries actually are still in existence because since they didn't seem to be real fancy places, you don't think that they would really keep them in existence. So I wonder how many have just been bulldozed over. Probably several, and that might be where some hauntings come in some of these older west towns. Because I know Tombstone still has a boot hill, but Dodge City, this but, is not there anymore, I don't think. No, it has, a, it has a boot hill, but the bodies were removed, as you'll hear later. And in Denver, the boot hill that was in Denver, basically, is now a park. So I don't know. Do you know which part? Cheeseman Park. Oh, is that Cheeseman? Okay, I was yeah. wondering. Okay. Cheeseman Park was the old boot hill. That's also for, for any of our listeners who ever saw the movie The Changeling, that haunted house was near Cheeseman Park as well. Well, and that's why the houses around Cheeseman Park are haunted, because they dug up some of the bodies, and then an enterprising gentleman who dug them up, he decided he would he was getting paid per coffin, and he decided to divide the bodies up between coffins so he'd have more coffins he'd get paid for. So the city found out, and that ended that. We are doing a periscope while we're doing this, and so we've got some people giving us some feedback. And uh, Jade was just saying, well, this is probably why we don't know about a lot of the people who are buried in the Boot Hills, because they're gone. Well, and they were not, records were not kept either. You know, in order to know who's buried in cemeteries, you got to have some records. And they just put them in the ground. They, they were drifters and, and gunfighters and gamblers and cowboys and you name Probably it. miners and miners. And, you know, they really didn't always keep real good records of those early cemeteries and, and exactly where they buried them because those weren't plotted. They just dug a hole in the hill and they put him in. So, and then there were no headstones. And if they did have a headstone, it was wood and it disintegrated over time. Stephen, I have to ask, since you've been to the little Wild West amusement, amusement park, <laughs> did they have like a fake boot hill there by any chance? Not that I know of. Sorry, I, I'm usually chattier, but I, I've been fascinated. I'm sitting here just like a child being told a bedtime story. <laughs> We're telling Stephen bedtime so stories. As long as you don't fall asleep, we're good. Our, our no, I, just, book. I think I forgot I was actually on the podcast. <laughs> I, to it. I think I remember a cemetery there, uh, like a fake cemetery. It's really kiddie, super targeted at children. I don't know if that's something they would do. Uh, plus, you know, it's not super authentic when you think about, oh, there's a giant Ferris wheel and there's a ski lift and there's a ropes course. They just happened to have cowboy hats on. A ropes course in a Wild West town? <laughs> okay. Oh, you know it. <laughs> hey. You haven't heard about those? Hey. I think the ropes course was invented in 1876. Well, I'm thinking it would have been a different <laughs> ropes course, and it was probably hung around a tree limb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not as fun. Definitely no. I was about to say, yeah, they definitely had rope back then. I just don't know that it was in the recreational way we think of it today. The harness wasn't secured around your waist so much as your neck. <laughs> Well, at least they were trying to keep you from falling <laughs> all the way to the ground. Some of the headstones that you find there have such wonderful epitaphs that are so much fun to read. You know, they uh, tell little stories all of their own, which probably wouldn't have been carved in the real headstone to begin with. Okay, to continue, one source stated that before burial, the dead person's boots were removed and placed under his head in the coffin. 
They wanted to keep all of us close together, I guess. Boot Hill was used until 1879 when the town company founded a new cemetery named Prairie Grove. The remains of 30 bodies were moved to the new cemetery located northwest of Dodge. And that, too, is a common thing to have happen. During the mass slaughter of the buffalo, and I like to call them bison because that's really their name. They're not water buffalo. They're they're bison. Dodge City was known as the buffalo capital. Between 1872 to 1878, an estimated 1,500,000 buffalo hides were shipped out of Dodge City. By the time the buffalo revenue was gone in 1875, a new source of revenue filled its place. And do you know why they were had the mass slaughter of the bison? And a lot of it was taking place from trains. They would, they, a lot of gunslingers and different people would be on the trains going through, like on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, and they would shoot out of the windows at the bison as they passed them by. And they just slaughtered them. They never used the meat, really. Mm-hmm. And it was government-sanctioned because the government felt that if you killed all the bison, you would get rid of the Native Americans because you were cutting off their food source. The Native Americans used the, the bison for everything. Their homes, they used them for clothing, utensils, clothing, food. The bison was their grocery store and their their hardware store and their mercantile store. So when you got rid of the bison, you really hurt the Native Americans. Longhorn cattle from Texas were being driven up the western branch of the Chisholm Trail to Dodge City for shipment to eastern markets. And this started taking place right after the Civil War. See, during the Civil War, there were no cowboys or people down in Texas to take care of the cows or the longhorns, and they were just left to roam on the vast prairies down there. Well, when the Civil War ended, all these soldiers were coming back, and they found all these maverick longhorns out there that didn't belong to anybody. So they started rounding them all up, and they started having cattle drives up from Texas, and they took them to places like Dodge City and Wichita, Kansas, and other places that were uh, along the railheads. And then they shipped the cattle from Texas to the eastern markets so that they would have uh, beef to eat. That was how the East got their beef, a lot of it anyway. They had beef in the East too, but this was one way of getting it. Over the next 10 years, more than 5 million head of cattle were driven to Dodge. Dodge became known as cowboy capital of the world and queen of the cow towns, as well as the wickedest little city in America. (laughs) So it was the first wickedest city, and then Vegas came to be, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) What happens in Dodge City stays Stays in in Dodge Dodge City. City. (laughs) Well, some of it did stay there. (laughs) After being on a cattle drive for months, the cowboys were ready to party when they arrived in Dodge, adding to the general mayhem already existing. Law and order arrived when respectable law enforcement officers such as W. Bat Masterson, Ed Masterson, his brother, Wyatt Earp, Bill Tigman, H.B. Ham, was a nickname for him, Bell, and Charlie Bassett. They were all hired to keep the peace. Not all at the same time, but some of them were. An ordinance stating guns could not be worn or carried north of the deadline was passed. The law did not extend south of the railroad tracks, which was the deadline. So the railroad tracks were the deadline that went between through the town. Anything on the south side of the deadline or the railroad tracks was open for everything. So that's where you could do your, you could have your gunfights and you could have your lawlessness, I guess, which wasn't really very far away from the north. It was only a railroad tracks that was separating them. I mean, you could have a bullet fly across. In 1877, Dodge City had 19 businesses and 1,200 residents. During the summer, the population grew with the arrival of cowboys, cattle buyers, gamblers, and ladies of the evening. And we all know who they are. Since the majority of the cattle drives originated in Texas, businesses, dance halls, and saloons catered to the Texas trade. Saloons were renamed Lone Star and Alamo, and brandies, liqueurs, and new mixed drinks were served, sometimes along with anchovies and Russian caviar. And some bars even had hard-boiled eggs on their counter. And you could also, believe it or not, get oysters. Oysters was quite a delicacy in the West, and a lot of people ate oysters. I guess if you like them. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because that's pretty far inland if you're talking Dodge City from 
Maybe they're Rocky Mountain oysters. The demise of Dodge City's heyday started when Fort Dodge closed in 1882 and continued after two fires in 1885 destroyed several buildings. A severe blizzard in January 1887 ended the cattle drives. The passage of a cattle quarantine law and laws against gambling, liquor, and prostitution were passed. So that pretty much put put the stamp on the end for Dodge City. Blizzards for cattle were a very, very bad thing. Thousands of cattle were killed in them. Phil had asked when we had been hinting over on the Spectacular Crew about what we were going to do for this show. I had said, well, we were going to go somewhere in the Wild West. And he had wondered if we were going to do something about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And so at first I was like, well, no, not really, because their name's didn't really come up in this. I mean, you know, you got Doc Holliday, Bat Masterson. And Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp was another one, yeah. Well, I decided to dig deep, and I actually found out that Butch Cassidy was in Dodge City, not with the Sundance Kid. This is back when he was probably late teens, maybe early 20s. He was just getting started in his criminal career. And what had happened is he would work on these ranches as a cowboy. So he was trying to do the good thing, sort of, kind of. But whenever a cattle... Little cow, you mean? Yeah, it would kind of wander off on its own. He would rustle it. <laughs> and I don't know where he would take them to, but if it was a stray cattle, he would take them somewhere. They pro- He probably had a, a, a place, you know, in some ravine somewhere where he could fence them in or he could keep them. And that's not unusual either. That's what the cattle rustlers did. Well, and he got a couple of his buddies that were also cowboys in on it with him. And what they would do is they'd get themselves a little bit of a herd of these rustled cattle that they'd gotten. And they would take them up to Dodge City because that was the best place to auction them off. And they would auction them off up there. So he did go to Dodge City and had some criminal activity going on there very early in his career. I had not known that. So I thought that was one of those fun little factoids out there. And he probably got away with it because the cattle probably were not branded at that time. With Dodge City, we mentioned this place called Fort Dodge. And I know this is something that you looked at, Stephen. Did you want to share with us what you'd rustled up about that? Fort Dodge was established in April, April 10th to be exact, of 1865 by Captain Henry Pierce. Originally, really, the purpose of the fort was to protect all those wagon trails that you were talking about, um, Santa Fe Trail, especially when people were coming through headed toward New Mexico. It went through an area that they referred to as the dry route that I was looking at. I apologize to any Spanish-speaking listeners. It is often called the Jornada de Muerte, the journey of death. Isn't that splendid? It's a very exactly. pleasant name for a route. It makes you sound. It makes it sound like I really want to go do that one, like the journey of death. If, I mean, they were without water for most of the distance. Trains would lay up to recruit after making passage, just because they needed more people. It was really rough, and so they would stop there. And uh, once the Native Americans figured out, oh, they're stopping here, they began to attack the wagon trains. <laughs> they decided, well, we should establish something here, and so they established the fort. The rumor has it that. It's been disputed by a few autobiographies written around the time, but uh, the rumor has it that the soldiers had no lumber or hardware, so they used available materials like grass and dirt to create all sod dugouts, and the fort was all sod at the beginning. And um, that kind of goes along with what Mom was saying (laughs) earlier on uh, about that being a thing with the earthen kind of buildings. That's really interesting. Super secure for a fort. No, think about a fort and you've got sod up on it. That's like, wow, <laughs> real safe. Right, yeah. I, I lived in Africa for just a little bit of time, and I saw a lot of like, mud huts. And I can't imagine, like, if somebody's shooting at you, there's nowhere to hide. Like, <laughs> Although you might be surprised, when you build the dirt up, it's, it, it's, um, it's kind of thick. So bullets maybe would have gone through it. But you've got to remember, the Indians really, they had bows and arrows more than they had the guns. So forts in the West were not like what you would think of as forts of the East, you know, with the stockade kind of thing. They were really open. It almost surprises me when I go to see some of these old forts, like Fort Learned and that, that they were they had all these buildings that were, Fort Hayes, they were buildings that were scattered all over like that. And they were not, like there was no big wall around them. They were just buildings setting out there. I, I don't... It just amazes me how they they even thought of them as protection against the Indian attacks. 
right? I was going to say, and from what I was able to read, like most of the buildings, quote unquote, weren't really buildings as much as it was trenches. They called them dugouts, but it's this like picture a baseball dugout, I guess. It's kind of how I'm picturing, like a little bit covered, but they said they were 10 by 12 in circumference and they were seven feet deep and they were just these trenches where they would hide. And uh, there was a door that faced the river and a hole in the roof that let air and light in. But it was just kind of these mud huts and trenches. Oh, wow. Yeah, and each one of them slept from two to four men, is what I was able to find. And uh, apparently they were in bad shape. Sanitation was really bad. Every time the rain would come in the spring, it would flood the dugouts. That's not good. So you've got pneumonia, dysentery, diarrhea, malaria. All that was going on, especially during the first year, because the fort was kind of out there by itself. And you know what kind of food they had? Hardtack. And they had beef jerky, and and if you've ever tried to eat hardtack, it's like you could lose your teeth eating it. Mm. And beef jerky, it's, you know, it's okay, but these were not great diets for them to be eating either. So you can imagine how much fun it must have been to be a soldier out on the prairie. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, everything I read was just <laughs> talking yep. about how rough it was really out there for those people. And so it made me almost feel a little bad. I was like, oh. A few years after the Civil War uh, ended in 1867, they relocated it, they moved it a little bit, and then they built it up with wooden and stone buildings. And so that was, uh, you know, a little better. And at the height of it, you know, they built it up and there were up to four companies of troops that occupied the post. That's a whole bunch. By the time it kind of started going downhill, uh, they said that only a dozen men occupied the entire fort. But actually, by the time it closed, a single man uh, was assigned to keep watch on the property. <laughs> it wasn't really until after the Civil War that they started building forts in the West, and they started sending soldiers to the West to take care of the Indian problem. So it was after the Civil War that the Indians really had more or less were taken into control. Right. There was an attack there, I read, by the Indians that was after the Civil War. But when I hear Indian attack on the Western Plains, I think these big-scale fights. But in 1868, the Kiowa and the Comanche attacked Fort Dodge. There were 21 casualties. Four soldiers were killed and 17 were wounded. And that's when the government kind of decided, okay, we're going to send real troops in there. And so they sent General Philip H. Sheridan uh, in the summer of 1868, and he brought a bunch of troops with him. And they started really going out, making runs, uh, trying to get the Native American population, quote-unquote, under control in the area. And uh, he was just starting to really ramp up his plans when the government knocked on his door and said, you're going, uh, it's time for you to leave. And uh, that's when Custer came in, and we all know what happened with Custer. And Custer was also at Fort Hayes. That was that was one of his primary posts was Fort Hayes, which is also in Kansas, and it's north of of um, Fort Dodge. Fort Dodge was is more on the southerly route going through Kansas. Fort Hayes is along what is I-70 today. Yeah, after that, I mean, all I could really find, there wasn't too much that went on. Uh, in 1880, uh, they took a big chunk of Fort Dodge's land and they opened it up for homesteaders. The majority of people who settled there were not actually homesteaders, though. Uh, they were mostly Dodge City residents, like saloon keepers, gamblers, and the ladies of the night. They had a lot of trouble controlling crime out in that area. And then just two years later, in June of 1882, they kind of shocked the people in Dodge City who were very scared of Native American attacks. Uh, and they closed the fort. And that made everybody a little uneasy. And then the last troops, it said, marched out and lowered the flag on October 2nd, 1882. It had kind of done its thing. It fulfilled its purpose. And that's when that one guy was assigned to kind of keep watch over the property. And buildings got torn down. They got moved. And at this point, there's just a lot of the stone buildings are still there. But uh, it's kind of a shell of what it was. Do you know if the dugouts are still there like for people to see if they go visit? I am not sure. I did not come across too much of that. I know... Uh, Kind of later on, they actually transitioned it. It kind of laid in wait for a while, and now it's a uh, Kansas soldier's home. I was going to ask you about that. I was like, I thought I'd heard somewhere that they turned it into a soldier's home, and I wasn't sure, so that that is true. Right, right. Okay. With, uh, they kind of went back to it, and uh, a lot of the Dodge City residents got with the government and said, hey, we've still got these stone buildings out there. What if we take Civil War vets and war veterans and we put them in? soldiers homes for the retired soldiers and the government said okay and so a federal law was enacted in 1889 
authorizing the use of the fort as a soldier's home by the state. They opened in early 1890. And so now it houses a library, a museum, a modern intensive nursing home, five residence halls, 60 cottages, and a recreation center. Stephen, something else I was going to point out when you were talking about that dry route, mm-hmm. they considered that the reason why they called that the dry route is because on the other side, there was like this division there on the Santa Fe Trail on the other side, they considered to be the wet side of the trail or the wet side of the country, which falls right into line with the fact that this is on that 100th meridian in Dodge City. So when you said that, I was like, isn't that fascinating to hear that back then they were calling this the dry route? Because once you got past this point, like you said, they stopped here in Dodge City, and that's why the Indians would attack them because they were resting before they were about to basically go into the desert and prepare themselves for that. And so I just thought that was really cool how that kind of just goes along the lines with this city is on the 100th Meridian. It's right there. All right. So that was Fort Dodge. Another really famous location that's here in Dodge City is the Long Branch Saloon, which today is now called the Boot Hill Museum. The Long Branch Saloon had a very peculiar start to it. Cowboys were playing a game of ball with soldiers and they laid down this wager. They said if the soldiers lost, they had to provide the supplies to build this saloon. And I can't remember. Do you remember off the top of your head, Mom, how many saloons there were in Dodge City? It was like there were more saloons than anything else, I believe. Well, and that wasn't unusual either. Most towns had more saloons. And, and you know, look at Las Vegas. (laughs) Well, that's true. There you go. So during this game, of course, the soldiers lost, so they did have to provide the supplies. The saloon got built. In 1878, Chalkley Beeson and William Harris bought the saloon, and they wanted to make this. A lot of saloons, they didn't have doors on them, and you could just kind of wander in off the street. They weren't really nice establishments. Well, these two gentlemen wanted to make this a gentleman's kind of establishment, so they dressed up the place. Beeson himself had a five-piece orchestra, so they would play nightly in the saloon. So that's a little bit different than maybe, I don't know, you'd have your little banjo or whatever. Yeah, a player, and you might have a, a singer or something. Oh, like so that. they probably didn't have those cool doors where they throw them both open and walk in. <laughs> no, a lot of them didn't even have, they didn't have the swinging doors. They didn't have any door on them. You could no. just walk in. They were open all the time. But did you know that some of the lawmen, and I'm trying to think, I think it was back Masterson, in fact, that would do that. He would walk in the saloon and he'd throw the doors open. And that way everybody was paying attention when he walked in. But he, when he walked in, he also could see what was going on. So he wasn't going to be ambushed. There wasn't going to be somebody behind that door to shoot him. Well, that's a good way to knock somebody out if they were hiding behind the door, too. <laughs> I know, but it's also a good way to let them know, put away whatever is illegal, because here's the, here's, here's the <laughs> <Quick>. sheriff. <laughs> Quick, bam. Oh, there he is. Hide it. Of course, in these saloons, gambling took place, and that happened at the Long Branch. Refreshments were served. And this is fascinating, the range of refreshments that they had there. Of course, you're going to have your beer and your, your liquor and stuff. But they also had sarsaparilla, which is one of my favorite things. I'm a big fan of sarsaparilla and root beer. They had lemonade and milk, too. (laughs) Can you imagine bellying up to the bar and like a glass of milk, please? Well, it was probably a rarity. They had more alcohol, so milk, you you had arrived if you came in and got milk. Just the the bartender asks if you want skim milk, and you respond, no, the hard... (laughs) (laughs) I don't want the skim milk. Give me the hard stuff. (laughs) Give me some of the hard stuff. Full leaded. There was milk served at some others, but not usually in the, not usually. That was un, not, not a common thing. But the beer that was served at the Long Branch was Anheuser-Busch. Hmm. So he was already established back then. So that serving a premier beer, Anheuser-Busch. Which makes sense because Dodge City's right near Missouri, which is the home of Anheuser-Busch. Oh, that makes sense. I wonder if they had little Clydesdales. Denise, I'm sure they did not have little Clydesdales hey, back then, maybe. Wait, oh, where okay. do you think pulling the wagons, how did the you beer get right. from point A to point B? You are right. Maybe that, maybe that but, happened. But, but do you know what's even more interesting? That they could have that beer cold. With ice in it. Now, yeah. this is fascinating. Back in this, where we're getting ready to go on the dry route, they had ice? Yes, they did. Mm. Where'd they get it from? During the summer, they would get it from the Rocky Mountains. The snow and stuff that, you know, they would have gone up into the Rocky Mountains and got it. And when they brought ice and that down, 
It would be stored in some building with sawdust or even hay. Oh, an ice house. Like an ice house. And that's how they kept ice everywhere. Well, remember, we didn't have refrigeration back in those days. They had ice boxes. So they had to keep the ice somehow. And in the wintertime, they would get the ice right from the Arkansas River because the Arkansas River would have frozen. So they could have gotten the chunks of ice right from the Arkansas River right next to them. I'm having this vision of the movie Frozen. How they were cutting the ice out of Oh, Diane, just let it there. go. That's exactly how it was, <laughs> Diane. You got it. That's it. Of course, I'm over at the Carousel of Progress. <laughs> <laughs> when he has the ice box before they have the fridge. So, Well, this saloon was located on Front Street, which burned down in 1885. Fire sure took out a lot of stuff back then. Uh, cattle drives had ended at about that same time, so they decided that they weren't going to rebuild the saloon, so apparently they didn't have very many people coming through there. In 1947, Front Street was reconstructed, according to old pictures, so that they could get it to look as it did back in 1876. So you can now visit Front Street in Dodge City. This is their, I guess, their historic district, and it will look just like it did in 1876. And the interesting thing is where they located this Long Branch Saloon is right on top of where the Boot Hill Cemetery was there, which makes you wonder if things are going bump in this Long Branch Saloon since they, I know they weren't really good about relocating the bodies all the time. So there might have some activity going on there. I don't believe we found anything that was going on there, but I wouldn't doubt it. And isn't it interesting how fortunate they are that they had photographs to reconstruct things from back at that time. So, you know, they had the photographers that took pictures. Well, you look at Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and their their bunch of outlaws that they took a photograph. So we know what they look like. It always amazes me that they sat down to have these pictures taken. And I'm like, okay, they're sitting down having a picture taken. Where's the sheriff? <laughs> he wasn't in the, in the studio. Apparently not. But we have we are so fortunate that, that these photographs were taken of old towns, and you can see the old streets and the buildings and, and what they look like. So today they can be reconstructed. You know, Margaret Brown had that done in her house, so they could, when they renovated it, they could renovate it just like it, it was in 1910 when she lived there because she happened to take photographs inside. The saloon saw its share of violence despite the efforts of the owners to keep it high class. Harry T. McCarthy was the Ford County surveyor, and he had platted out the Prairie Grove Cemetery. Platted or plotted? Platted. 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 Oh, it is platted? Yeah, platted. Okay, if I, I never want a cemetery plot, I want a plat. <laughs> Denise, it's the technical term. Plat means that it's like a map. It's like a street map. So he, he mapped out the cemetery. That doesn't mean that's the plot. That's something, Denise is something they put in the plat. Denise is going to go into the local cemetery now and say, I'd like to buy a plat. And they'll be like, um, what? It's, it's the plot is in the plat. <laughs> the plot is in the plat. That is great, Mom. That's a t-shirt waiting to happen. <laughs> Famous line from Ann's student, the plot is in the plot. <laughs> he plotted out the Prairie Grove Cemetery. In 1878, the U.S. government made him a marshal. On July 13, 1878, McCarthy was standing at the bar at the Long Branch Saloon when a drunk cattle camp cook, say that fast three times, took McCarthy's pistol from its holster. He shot McCarthy when he turned around and killed him. McCarthy was buried in the very cemetery he had platted out. One of our fun facts with that is Gunsmoke actually made this saloon famous. And I just would like to point out his name is McCarty, not McCarthy. Oh, it's not Paul's. <laughs> I think it's interesting. This poor guy, he platted out this cemetery and then he ends up being buried in it. And it wasn't because it was way down the road. And then there was the shootout between Levi Richardson and Frank Loving. And I don't know why his last name is Loving, because he's not about to do a very loving act here. This is from the Ford County Globe on April 8th, 1879. This is what it read. There is seldom witnessed in any civilized town or country such a scene as transpired at the Long Branch Saloon in this city last Saturday evening, resulting in the killing of Levi Richardson, a well-known freighter of this city, by a gambler named Frank Loving. So already we're pitting the working class man against the bad guy gambler. 
For several months, Loving has been living with a woman toward whom Richardson seems to have cherished tender feelings. Uh Uh-oh. And on one or two occasions previous to this, which resulted so fatally, they have quarreled and even come to blow. So they're fighting over a woman. Richardson was a man who had lived for several years on the frontier, and though well-liked in many respects, he had cultivated habits of bold and daring, which are always likely to get a man into trouble. Such a disposition as he possessed might be termed bravery by many, and indeed we believe he was the reverse of a coward. He was a hard-working, industrious man, but young and strong and reckless. Can you imagine this is a newspaper writing about this guy? This is, yeah, but if that. you read the old newspaper, It's so poetic. Yes, that's the way they were, exactly. The old newspapers, if you read them, they really were, and you know, they were a little exaggerating too. Loving is a man of whom we know but very little. He's a gambler by profession, not much of a rowdy, but more of the cool and desperate order when he has a killing on hand. He's about 23 years old. Both or either of these men, we believe, might have avoided the shooting if either had possessed a desire to do so. (laughs) (laughs) You must first possess the desire. Exactly. But both being willing to risk their lives, each with confidence in himself, they fought because they wanted to fight. As stated in the evidence below, they met. One said, I don't believe you will fight. The other answered, try me and see. Oh, that's like a dare, dare, double dog dare. Yeah, kind of. But this isn't putting a tongue on a pole, Denise. And immediately both drew murderous revolvers and at it they went in a room filled with people. The leaden missives flying in all directions. Neither exhibited any sign of a desire to escape the other, and there is no telling how long the fight might have lasted had not Richardson been pierced with bullets and Loving's pistol left without a cartridge. Richardson was shot in the breast, through the side, and through the right arm. It seems strange that Loving was not hit, except a slight scratch on the hand, as the two men were so close together that their pistols almost touched each other. That's a bad shot. You got the guy straight in front of you and you miss him? They need to go to the shooting range for sure. I guess. Eleven shots were fired. Six by Loving and five by Richardson. He shoots five times. The guy's right in front of him and he misses him every time. I would have thought that his gun misfired. You know, that happened a few times and some outlaws lived because a guy was standing right in front of him and shot at him and the pistol misfired. Guns were not always reliable in those days. Yeah, but five times? But he stood there and shot five times. He wasn't... How did he miss him? Well, Heather just said he sucks. So that pretty much answers that. (laughs) Thanks, Heather. (laughs) I wonder wonder if Loving was wearing one of those uh, bulletproof vests. Yeah, actually, we saw that the other night, didn't we? I can't remember what the name of the outlaw was, but he got shot and he kind of fell down. And they were like, how did that not kill him? And he gets back up and he had some kind of a metal breastplate or something on, right? Yep, the first bulletproof vest. Yeah, of course, this Richardson had gotten hit. Richardson only lived a few moments after the shooting. Loving was placed in jail to await the verdict of the coroner's jury, which was self-defense. And he was released so he could shoot the guy six times and it's self-defense. Richardson has no relatives in this vicinity. He was from Wisconsin, about 28 years old. So he was a bit older than Loving, but neither one of them seemed to have much sense, I guess. Together with all the better class of our community, we greatly regret this terrible affair. We do not believe it is a proper way to settle difficulties, you think? (laughs) And we are positive it is not according to any law, human or divine. But if men must continue to persist in settling their disputes with firearms... We would be in favor of the dueling system. Okay, so now we have the paper voting which way they want people to kill each other. You know, this makes me wonder now, because gunfights, we see those on the street at this time. They seem pretty similar to the dueling system, too, only you just don't have the rules. You don't have the we're back to back, walking away from each other, then turning around quick. You didn't have a second. Yeah. So it's it's interesting how they're talking about a dueling system, even though at that time there probably was more of a gunfight system. Which would not necessarily endanger the lives of those who might be passing up or down the street attending to their own business. Now remember, there were bullets flying in this place. And what happened with Richardson's, if they didn't hit Loving, it doesn't say anybody else got hit in there either. But remember, they're opening fire in a saloon full of people. They could have hit a lot of different bystanders that could have died in all of this. I know, I'm surprised they didn't hit anybody else. Because well, they're not a very good shot, so it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Well, I love how the paper, the leaden missives flying in all directions and nobody got hit. Hmm. Amazing. We do not know that there is cause to censure the police unless it be to urge them to urge upon them the necessity of strictly enforcing the ordinance preventing the carrying of concealed weapons. 
Neither of these men had a right to carry such weapons. Gamblers as a class are desperate men. They consider it necessary in their business that they keep up their fighting reputation and never take a bluff. On no account should they be allowed to carry deadly weapons. So I guess that's the newspaper's opinion on that one. So that is our basic history here on Dodge City, covering some of the major locations and such. Now let's talk about the hauntings that we managed to pull out. So let's go to you first. (laughs) Josh said newspapers have similar opinions still. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go over to you, Stephen. Uh, What did you find out about some hauntings that are going on at Fort Dodge? I only found one at Fort Dodge. Um, It was a report of strange occurrences, weird sounds that would go on in the barn. The lights would go on and off every morning at 3.30. Um, which I looked into, and uh, in one of the autobiographies of someone who lived at the fort, he said they always milked the cows at 3.30 in the morning in the barn, and so I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Um, Oh, that's interesting. That's the only thing I could find with 3.30. Maybe the ghosts are just, I don't know. You know, when you hear about reports about ghosts or people wake up in the middle of the night and they hear something or see something that scares them in that way, it's usually about 3 o'clock in the morning. So I was wondering what the significance of it being 3.30 in the morning is, that's fascinating to find out that it has something to do with the cattle and it's the barn. So it makes you wonder if it is something in connection to milking cows in the barn at 3.30. It could be a residual energy. Right. And the doors would open and close by themselves. So in my head, I'm picturing, literally picturing a spirit that's just opening the door, turning the lights on, milking the cow, turning the lights off and leaving. I'm thinking you're right. That's exactly what I would picture. Interesting. You wonder if whoever had to milk the cow really liked doing that, or if it was so <laughs> routine that he just, you know, maybe with somebody from back east that that was a normal thing for him to be doing, or he could have gotten killed somehow some morning when he was mm-hmm. out there milking the cows. You never know. They could have gotten attacked or something. and Or the cow kicked him, or he had a heart attack, or who knows. Interesting. Fascinating. Well, thank you. The Sewell Intermediate Center, former Old Dodge City High School, The library of this former high school used to be haunted by the ghost of a student who died in the school. He was wandering around under the school in the basement and became trapped and died. One day when the school was still a high school, students were walking through the hallways after hours to take down flyers they'd put up about a play the school had performed when they heard the library door open and close in a male laugh. They raced over to see who else was in the school and found no one, and the library doors were locked. Suddenly, the flyers were grabbed from the hands of one of the students and torn in half before their very eyes. They all ran screaming from the building. Yeah, I don't think I blame them. No, I don't either. Now, what makes I wonder about because this is when it back when it was the high school, and now it's become basically an elementary school. Makes you wonder: is anything going on with those little school kids? Yikes! Edward J. Masterson was the brother of Bat Masterson, and he was the marshal of the Dodge City Police Department. A man was walking down the street one day, and he was carrying a gun, which was in violation of the town's ordinances. The man handed the gun over, but when Ed turned and walked away. The man pulled out another pistol he had. Perhaps he should have frisked the guy, and he shot Ed. The shot didn't kill Ed right away, and he was able to shoot back at the man, killing him. I think that's pretty good since he was already shot. (laughs) Ed then succumbed to his own gunshot. Ed was buried at the old Fort Dodge Cemetery, but his body was later moved to Prairie Grove Cemetery. I always wonder why they moved bodies around, but they did that, and they still do. Years later, a housing development was planned, and it wanted the land where the cemetery was located. Of course it did. (laughs) So poor Marshall Ed was moved again. See, these cemeteries get moved. Or was he? His body seems to be missing, and some have surmised that he is still buried in someone's backyard. Now he could be. Because you never know. Did he have a headstone on there? Did they remember where they put him? Poltergeist anyone? (laughs) And indeed, it would seem that Ed's restless body has led to a restless spirit. The ghost of Ed is seen walking around the old Front Street location. Well, if I got moved that many times, I suppose I'd be a ghost and be moving around too when I was dead. We also have some (laughs) tales about some ghostly cowboys, which makes sense, Dodge City. Uh, There was a user who was going by the name of S said, quote unquote, I saw a full figure 1880s looking cowboy standing next to the Amtrak train at 3 a.m. There's that 3 a.m. Wearing a flat hat, mustache, duster coat with pants tucked into boots. I asked the conductor about him, but he didn't see the figure. 
which was looking right at me with a serious, mean expression. So how bizarre that he sees the cowboy, but the conductor did not. That's very weird, but he might have been a sensitive and the conductor might have not. And an anonymous person added, I saw the same cowboy next to the train tracks by the south side on North 14th Street. Looked so real as I drove by when I was on my way to the grocery store to get milk around 1 a.m. or so. Goes to the store at 1 for milk. I never did tell anyone because I thought maybe it was just my imagination. But since I moved to Dodge City, I have seen more than just that cowboy by the train tracks. Very scary. Well, I'm sure you've seen a lot of stuff by the train tracks. But, <laughs> but, re- but remember what the train tracks were. They were the line that went down the middle of the town. And this was on the south side where all the wild and woolly stuff took place, where all the lawlessness was. And here's this ghost of this guy that looks like he's... Did you guys find the, uh, the information on the old church? No, I have not heard about the old church. Fill us in. Old St. Mary's, and it's an older church that has one of those long staircases in the front. Really, all I could find was there was a nun that was working at the church, and she hit that top stair, and she fell and broke her neck, and she died at the bottom of the stairs. And so people have claimed that when they get to the bottom of those stairs or they're walking by the church on the street at the bottom of those stairs, that they can hear a woman moaning in pain. And then as they go up the stairs and they get further down the street, it just passes. That is bizarre. Yeah, it's it's a little creepy. I was going to say, like I said, I just found a few accounts of that sort of thing. And somebody else said they saw a woman dressed in black uh, around the church. So that could possibly be a nun. And we've got a handful of reviews here to share with everyone. The first one is from X Crazy Jakes. Creepy good, five stars. Just came across this podcast. I'm really enjoying it. I've been binge listening the past couple of days. I also like the style of this podcast, like listening to friends talking. Well, thanks, Crazy Jay. Thank you. And from Just a Story Podcast, unique perspective, five stars. Who doesn't love a scary story? There's something innately interesting about the macabre. And finding out that these dark tales are tied to historical events only ups the intrigue. Backed by an engaged community and offering a list of topics that never fails to generate curiosity, this podcast is well worth your time. Well, thank you to Just a Story Podcast. And let me just say, if you guys aren't tuning into the Just a Story Podcast, I would highly recommend it. I've really been enjoying it. It's brand new. And they're very similar to us in style, Denise, because they're a married couple as well. So you get that chemistry already going. And what they feature on there is Urban Legends. And they look into the history of them similar to the way we do, but they also get into the psychology behind them. And a lot of their urban legends are some of the more recent ones, like, you know, the guy who gets left in the ice bath and has had his kidney removed and there's a note sitting there to call 911. Yes, all those really creepy... Or the babysitter who's sitting on the couch and calls the dad and says, "Uh, you know, can I move to a different room? Because there's a creepy clown statue in here and I just, it's giving me the willies and all of a sudden the dad tells her to get the hell out of the house with the kids because they have no clown statue. Oh, so Yikes. this is the I, kind of stuff they get into and they do a great job with it. So check it out. I'll and check I think it out in the light of day. <laughs> I think our <laughs> listeners will enjoy it. And from the UK, we have SKMP from London. Audio quality appalling first episodes. So we got four stars out of five. Creative idea like the host, informative listen. Hope the audio quality improves. I really hope that people don't just listen to the first few shows and judge us based on that. <laughs> Especially if they listen to me reading The Raven. It's like, please, please come listen to a later show. And I have to say, Denise, even early on, I thought we had fairly good audio considering the fact that we are pretty much working on the cheap here <laughs> and didn't really know what we were doing. Well, early on, we only had one microphone and we sat on one chair cheek to cheek. So that I was know. kind of fun. I wish people would give other, you know, Give podcasters the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I know you're listening to everybody and their brothers getting into this. Every newspaper has a podcast now. Every TV station shows. I mean, 48 Hours has got a podcast up now. Downton Abbey. Everybody (laughs) is jumping in. And so I hope they don't judge us all against each other because I'm sorry, those shows have millions of dollars to pour into podcasts. We don't. And then we have a review from Australia. Another one from Down Under. Down Under. And I hope I say this right, Tanwi. 
entertaining and informative. Five stars. My two favorite things, history and the paranormal, are presented by two great women in this podcast. If you're looking for an interesting and fascinating take on historical haunted places, this is the podcast you want to subscribe to. Well, thank you, Tanwi. We appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Well, Stephen, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Sure, absolutely. Always a pleasure. And Mom, it was great having you here as well. I had a lot of fun. We want to thank you for listening to this one. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. This has been Stephen. And this has been Mom. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We want to thank Robin for her one-time donation. And we want to welcome Aaron Shipley and Richard Little as brand new executive producers. Yes, welcome to both of you and thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. <laughs>